fellow Americans tonight with a heart full of gratitude and boundless optimism. I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. That is the voice of President Donald Trump last week accepting the Republican nomination for a second term in the White House. The Republican National Convention featured mostly Trump hardliners and loyalists warning about the fears of socialism and chaos and destruction if Joe Biden and Democrats were to win in November. And they tried to make the case for Trump's efficacy as president over the last four years. But giving the party the largest benefit of the doubt on those points, what was objectively missing from the convention was a platform, a set of ideas driving this candidacy for president of the United States. The party just didn't write one other than to say it stands behind the idea of Trump as president. This was perhaps the codification of what anyone paying attention already knew to be true, that Republicans are no longer a party of ideas per se, let alone actual policy goals. Politico chief political correspondent Tim Alberta, a Michigan native, took a deep dive into this dynamic in the GOP ahead of the convention. He spoke with a lot of prominent Republicans who do not and cannot deny the fact that the party has abandoned any vision for America other than to be led, at least for now, by Donald Trump. Tim Alberta joins me now to talk about what we saw at last week's RNC and his reporting on the topic. Tim Alberta, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Good morning. Yes. So first, let's get your overall reaction to the RNC last week. You're reporting sort of previewed what we would see during uh, the convention. But uh, what did you think of what we actually witnessed? Well, look, you know, I I don't think that there were any great surprises. Um, You know, we we do know that at this point, not to be too cute about it, but the, the basic reality is that Donald Trump is the Republican Party and the Republican Party is Donald Trump. And and there was essentially a uh, a procession of speakers and and videotape segments um, that were presented throughout the week that were all in celebrating the presidency of Donald Trump and um, and deflecting criticisms of him as being you know racist or misogynistic or incompetent or, or you know any any number of other things that uh, you know, that, that uh, his opponents, uh, both on the left and sometimes on the right, have, have used against him. And uh, it was very much geared toward what, uh, what the party has become, which is, I think, you know, objectively much more of a cult of personality than an ideas-driven political entity. Uh, there was very little talk of, of you know, major sweeping policy reforms that could be set forth to improve the lives of everyday Americans. That, that's just something that was completely missing, and intentionally so. As you mentioned, there was no platform for this convention, and, and you just can't overstate how, how unprecedented that is and, and how unusual it is. Uh, every four 
I think we have, I think we're having a hard time with Tim Alberta's line. We're going to try to get him rebooted there, get him back here on the program. Uh, meanwhile, uh, let's get the phones going. If, did you watch the Republican National Convention last week? And call and tell us what you thought of it. Uh, do you think the GOP is in a state of meltdown? In other words, is it becoming less of a political party and more of a cult of personality surrounding the idea of Donald Trump as president. They didn't have a platform for the Republican National Convention last week, something that not just Democrats have been criticizing, but also a lot of Republicans have said that's a strange thing and an odd way to get Americans to support the Republican Party. So what do you think of the state of your party in 2020? If you're a Republican and heading into the November election, what do you think the party stands for other than the re-election of Donald Trump? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll put you into the conversation that way. We do have Tim Alberta back with us. Tim, uh, you were you were talking about your reactions to the RNC last week. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think ultimately what we saw was um, not surprising, just in the sense that, to your point, Stephen, when when a party is so bold as to announce that it doesn't even bother putting a platform together, something on paper that's a snapshot in time to demonstrate what the party believes in, what its ideals are, uh, what its organizing principles are. Uh, I mean, that's it's, it's a stunning thing. It, it, it just it really is. And, and I think for folks who aren't immersed in politics, they can't necessarily appreciate the significance of it. But every four years, you know, this is a major exercise that a party undertakes to sure. to ensure that and that the very fundamental ideas and 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 ideologies and principles and policy positions of a party are put on paper and and canonized and recorded for history's sake. And for the party to not even bother doing it and essentially say, eh, you know, we support Trump. That's what we believe in. It it's it's. Stunning, and yet it's not that stunning because it is very much consistent with what we've seen over the last three and a half years. So I, I want to talk about some of the things that in the past would distinguish the Republican National Convention from this year's. So if, if you think of the policy kinds of imperatives that Republicans often showcase at the conventions, you would maybe talk about tax breaks. You would maybe talk about deregulation of business. Those were things that I didn't hear any of last week. And I think that goes to reinforce your point, which is that this is not about policy or policy imperatives, that this is about personality. All of the convention, every night of the convention, was convened around the idea of propping up Donald Trump as president, defending his record and talking about what he was not. And the rest of it, I guess, was uh, the idea of sort of recrowning him as the party's nominee. But I never really even heard the word tax cuts last week. I never heard the words deregulation. And no, that's kind of unusual for the Republican convention. 
Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's right, Stephen. And, uh, and when you consider the priorities that most voters will, will tell you uh, are, are most important to them, the things that feel most urgent, the problems that they want the government to try and solve, right? Health care at the top of the list for so many voters, right? You didn't hear a mention of health care during four days of the Republican National Convention. And, you know, at least in the pre-Trump Republican Party, they would pay lip service to the idea of, well, we're going to repeal Obamacare and and replace it with something even better. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't even talk of that. I mean, after, after a decade spent trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, Republicans essentially gave up on that, which is in and of itself, again, it's just it's almost unbelievable because of the fact that so many Republican voters, so many voters loyal to Trump and self-described conservative Republicans, they care about health care. They will list it as a major issue. And part of the reason that Trump has succeeded where other Republicans failed is I think he has been smart enough to recognize that these Republican ideas for getting rid of Obamacare are unpopular. So even while he works well, even while his administration works uh, to try and uh, unwind the law in the courts, he doesn't talk about it much anymore because I think he realizes that it's politically toxic. And you look at other pro- other big issues. I mean, even something that Republicans could sink their teeth into, like immigration. There was no mention of immigration last week, I, other than just the very broad "we're going to secure the border." But this is a massive massive policy dilemma that everybody of every party realizes and, and agrees that the immigration system is broken. There was no talk of it whatsoever. No, no, no plan or no even vision for how we can fix this huge problem at the border. So you go down the list and, uh, and even the friendliest Republican talking points to, you know, to what you said a minute ago, they just, they were gone. And in their place was just this sort of running celebration of all things Trump the, the man and Trump the president, but very little about the party and what it would do. So, so uh, th- there's a theory I want to bounce off you about the people who support the president, the people who voted for him four years ago and are likely to do the same this year, that they're not that interested in policy and policy questions or policy initiatives, that their real interest is actually about the rest of America. In other words, that they are convinced that the president will hold the line or, quote-unquote, crack down on interests and interest groups that they don't agree with. So they may not not believe that that the president will make their health care better, but they may believe that he will make sure that poor people in inner cities aren't getting stuff for free. He may not be able to, for instance, secure the borders or figure out a long-term solution to the immigration problems we have, but he's going to build a wall and keep these people out of the country. If that's true, and certainly last week's convention suggested that that dynamic is much stronger than the idea of affirmative policymaking, then I guess what's wrong with what the Republicans did? They they played exactly to those kinds of interests. So 
I think it's very difficult for any uh, objective observer to have uh, watched what's unfolded over the last four years and to disagree with that theory that you put forth. And, and I think part of Trump's political success, as, as bewildering as it was in 2016, was Trump, I think, realized something fundamental about the electorate, and particularly about the right in America, that most Republicans refused to observe or refused to believe was true, which was that many voters are just far less ideological and far less interested in policy than perhaps we've ever realized. And that for many of these voters, they are looking for representation almost at a tribal cultural level. Mm. And to your point, Stephen, if, if, if along comes someone who is sort of presenting themselves as a fighter, as a brawler, as someone who is ready to you know, step into the arena and stand up for your way of life and, uh, and, and really take the fight to the other side and, 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 and you know, um, sort of go after, in ways we've never seen before, people who don't live like you, people who don't talk like you, people who don't look like you. That is just an enormously potent thing that I guess we never really appreciated because we'd never really seen a politician, certainly not a politician at the level of the presidency, uh, do it before. Uh, and, and so I think Trump was on to something in recognizing that there was just this sort of uh, this, this waning interest in, in policy positions. And I think that it was observed uh, by some even before Trump came along. Like you would, you know, in, in 2012, when Mitt Romney was the Republican nominee, he would have convened these these massive rallies of fifteen or 20,000 people at an airport hangar, and he would launch into his stump speech about marginal tax rates mm-hmm. and, and about, <laughs> and about the, the death tax and about economic growth and GDP. And you could just see like people's eyes were rolling into the back of their heads, and, and it clearly was not what they were looking for. They were hungry for something, but it wasn't that. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We're talking about the Republican Party, fresh off the Republican National Convention, which was all about Donald Trump. Donald Trump's first four years in office and the idea of his next four years in office. But what are the ideas that are powering that candidacy? Wasn't a whole lot of conversation about policy initiatives that would define that presidency. It really is just about this person and his personality. What do you think of that? If you are a Republican in particular, we want to hear from you about what you think about that and whether you think that's enough to convince voters to give Donald Trump another four years in the White House. Let's go to Charlie in Detroit. Charlie, welcome to the show. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hi. Thanks. In case you're not aware, I'm not a Republican. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's fear. You know, the, the Donald Trump and his media machine, just like Adolf Hitler and his propaganda machine, have stoked white fear in this com- country to a point where you know, we could be refac- facing some real civil unrest. Not that we aren't already. But 
he's used this Mark Burnett, this you know TV producer from the UK that made him the star he was. You're fired, you know, to build up into this, you know, tough guy. I'm going to take care of you all. You know, <laughs> keep the blacks down, keep the Mexicans out. It's it's just it's insane. And if this country goes for it again, I don't even know if I want to be part of it. Mm. Charlie, I appreciate the call and the and the comments. Tim, race has a lot to do with the direction that the party is headed right now. And it certainly has a lot to do with the way that the president is framing his reelection campaign. And I, I said this recently, and I want to get you to, to react to it. In 2016, the, the argument was Donald Trump is not a racist, that he 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 doesn't see African Americans or or other people of you know ethnic minorities as uh, as somehow lesser or he's not going to do awful things. Um, and then over the last four years, of course, he's done things and said things that are progressively more aggressive in in that realm. And now the argument seems to be, well, yeah, the president might be a racist. The president might uh, might be a throwback to George Wallace style campaigning, but there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's almost as if the wink and nod is gone or the veil has been lifted. And the argument is this is the right way to be thinking about these things. And that strikes me as very popular, of course, with his base, but also very dangerous when you talk about people outside his base. I don't know how much appeal that message will actually have for people who are not diehard Trumpers uh, in the way that, uh, that, that he expects. Yeah, no question. Uh, and, and when you think about the sort of dog whistle politics that, uh, that Trump had dabbled in for uh, much of his much of his uh sort of business and 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 entertainment life um it the the dog whistle sort of went away gradually and it became something you know i guess closer to a a foghorn and uh and there's no i mean look anybody 50 years from now Stephen, looking through a history book at the you know trying to understand and contextualize the rise of donald trump as a political figure they would have to start in 2011 with his birther crusade, mm-hmm. and and that was that was objectively the beginning of his star turn in conservative Republican circles, and uh, and and on Fox News, I might add, that was really when he began to, you know, gain a, a profile, and and you can trace it forward through a hundred different events, and I don't need to go chapter and verse, but I think, you know, when you hear there, there's a bit of um, there's a bit of a, a a jarring juxtaposition here in recent weeks between the president repeatedly coming out and and essentially warning white suburbanites that these black and brown people are going to come in and take over your neighborhoods and mm-hmm. turn them into war zones and your idyllic white picket fence existence is going to be no more if Joe Biden and the radical left have their way. Right? That 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 has been the message, and then. You know, sort of uh, right next to that, for four days at the Republican National Convention, an unprecedented number of black speakers were given precious time 
to come out and address the nation and essentially defang any attacks on Trump as a racist and say, look, I, I know this guy. I've known him for years. I know how he talks. I know what's in his heart. He is not this thing that you've heard that he is. And what's interesting about that, Stephen, is that what, it, what, what those messages are really engineered to do, it's, it's not to chip away at the black vote. It's not to try and peel away some substantial or significant number of black voters away from the Biden campaign. That message is aimed squarely at those same white suburbanites who are sort of moderate, in many cases, moderate Republicans or moderate Democrats, and a lot of them are sort of on the fence still, and, and they can't stand the president's behavior and his rhetoric, but they do like some of his policies, and, and they're unsure about how to view him and what to believe. And for those voters, it's got to be just uh, completely disorienting to, to, to have the president saying to them very plainly that, look, I'm the only thing standing between you mm-hmm. and a takeover of, of your communities by these people who don't look like you, and you'd better be scared of them. And then on the other hand, have all of these black speakers coming out and saying, no, listen, don't, 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 don't worry about, you know, that rhetoric. Don't, don't, don't believe in what you're hearing. Believe me, right? Mm-hmm. I can vouch for this guy. And so there's this constant tension in the Trump campaign's messaging on how they want to approach these people. And, and ultimately, you know, we'll see if it's successful, but it certainly is a bit of a head scratcher politically. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Tim Alberta, and we're going to continue to hear from you. Frank in Detroit, we'll get to you next. We've got some Twitter and Facebook comments that we'll want to read as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city, your town, your voice on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. My guest is Tim Alberta. He's a chief political correspondent for Politico magazine. He wrote a piece recently titled The Grand Old Meltdown, What Happens When a Party Gives Up on Ideas. It is about the Republican Party, and it was written in advance of the Republican National Convention, where... We didn't see a lot of ideas put forth other than the idea of, hey, we've got this president that we really like, Donald Trump. Let's reelect him. They didn't talk about tax cuts. They didn't talk about deregulation. They didn't even talk about health care. The one thing that I would suspect most Americans have deep concerns about, they just talked about Trump. They talked about his first four years. They defended him against the criticisms that he's faced. And they said, Let's go for another four years. Is that enough? If you're a Republican, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about this direction that the party has taken. Uh, If you're not a Republican, call and tell us whether this convinces you. Does this sway you to vote for President Donald Trump in November? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work them into the show. Let's go to Billy in Gross Point Park. Billy, 
Welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Thanks. Uh, I just wanted to bring up the brand politics idea, which was brought up when he came down the escalator. It was, he's an icon of that part of American life just loves to support a brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unwillingly support a brand just because they're, you know, it's, it's the uh, wrestling fans, uh, the fast food fans, the uh, people that love the uh, oval track racing and uh, big trucks with fat tires that blow black smoke. You know, all of those devices are things that it's like, man, yeah, yeah, you can you can love that for a minute or two, but then you're going to need another one. Plastics and plastic plates and, you know, anything you can use a couple times and then throw it away. Give me another one after that, you know, instant gratification. Hmm. Uh, he's he he has brought all of those people out of the woodwork where you know, it doesn't have a future. It just should be obvious, I think, as uh, as a thinker. You know, I'm not a I'm not a Republican, but I am surrounded by them. My whole family behind me. I'm one of the black sheep of the Republican family. You know what I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Billy? I really appreciate the call and and those thoughts. This idea of branding. I mean, that is something that Trump. It may be his most successful achievement, Tim Alberta, if you think about the business failures he's had. The idea of Trump and Trumpism is a brand that does sell, and that certainly was his initial appeal in 2016. But it does seem to me that the brand has been damaged as well over the last four years by the things that he's done and said, and that for the Republican Party, I guess, to give itself over just to that brand has real danger. And there are people in your story who talk about that danger. Yeah, the long-term implications of being tethered to Trump, and I think maybe tethered isn't even a strong enough word, right? To to allow Trump to completely take over the Republican Party and and rebrand it in his own image, it is a dangerous thing in the long term. Uh, To the caller's point, I, I can't tell you, Stephen, how many voters I have spoken with over the last, you know, four and a half, five years traveling the country, covering campaigns. And when you talk to them about Trump, they will talk about how they were huge fans of the Celebrity Apprentice, how they, you know, saw him, uh, you know, have a cameo in, in some film that they cared about or that they went to Las Vegas and they stayed at his hotel or any number of different things that will speak to the power of that brand that the caller was referencing. And, and, you can't measure with sort of traditional political metrics just how powerful the thing that is. So there's no question that that is what helps him get a foot in the door. And this this force of personality, this almost cult of personality that some Republicans will describe it as, you know, they're willing to go along for the ride right now because it's gotten them into power and it's given them an ability to uh, to, to control things in Washington for a time. But ultimately, bringing it full circle back to some of what we were discussing earlier as far as race and, and you know, demographics, uh, the writing is on the wall here for Republicans. You know, after 2012, when Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama, there was this real period of soul-searching inside the Republican Party because mm-hmm. their, the party's performance among non-white voters was so dreadful that as a matter of 
math, it was becoming harder and harder to see how the Republican Party in a national election. And Donald Trump uh, essentially, you know, convinced a lot of people on the right that that hand-wringing was a waste of time, that really you could double down and turn out massive numbers of working-class white voters, and that you didn't need to have a diverse coalition to win the presidency. And, and he was right, but he was also sort of wrong. You know, he, he, he wins the Electoral College by three states and, mm-hmm. and by a total of 77,000 votes in those three states, but he loses the popular vote by three million. Mm-hmm. And, if Trump, and if Trump does not find a way to turn out even more white voters who maybe sat out 2016 because they didn't like either candidate, it is difficult to see him being able to put together the coalition he needs to win this fall. And then when you look forward over the next 10, 15, 20 years, this is a country that is becoming enormously diverse. And, you know, for every one white voter without a college degree, there are two white voters with a college degree. For every one white voter without a college degree, there are two and a half minority voters entering the electorate. The point is, the numbers game here is just becoming very unfriendly to Republicans, and Trump has done nothing to address it, and in many ways, the party is in worse shape now than it was five years ago in that Mm -hmm. regard. Okay, Tim Alberta, chief political correspondent for Politico magazine. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much for coming by. My pleasure. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we are going to continue talking about the RNC. We're going to recap it with two of our favorite Michigan political junkies, Republican John Selleck and Democrat Adrian Heman. We also want to continue to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll talk with Frank in Detroit and Michael downtown. If you want to join them again, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Here's an update from WDET General Manager Mary Zatina. At the beginning of June, WDET shared the news that we needed to raise $2 million before our fiscal year ends September 30th. You are responding in a generous and heartwarming way. Hundreds of current members made an extra gift. 700 long-lapsed members joined again. We welcome you back with open arms. And over 500 brand new members made their very first gift to WDET because they, like you, appreciate what we do and want to support this nonprofit community service. We have well over a million dollars to go, but there is a spring in our step and a song in our heart knowing we travel this journey with you. Thank you. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. We want to continue talking about the Republican National Convention and the Republican Party. Last week, we spoke with two of our favorite political gurus here in Michigan about the Democratic National Convention. And now we're going to welcome them back to react to what we saw from the GOP last week. John Selleck is president and CEO of Harbor Strategic Public Affairs. He worked for attorneys general Mike Cox and Bill Schuette, Governor Engler, and in the Michigan legislature. John, welcome back to Detroit today. 
Good morning. And also with us is Adrian Hemond, a Democratic political uh, guru in the, the state of Michigan. Adrian, welcome back to Detroit today. Me. Yes. So, John, we just spoke with Politico's Tim Alberta about his reporting on the GOP and his view that the party is in the middle of what he calls a meltdown. He writes, to be a Republican today requires you to exist in a constant state of moral relativism, turning every chance as at self-analysis into an assault on the other side, pretending the petting zoo next door is comparable to the three-ring circus on your front lawn. What is your response to that as a Republican and someone who has worked for Republicans for a really long time? Well, I've read the article and I followed him closely. Um, he knows his stuff. Um, w- one way to talk about it is to talk about the controversy about whether there was going to be a platform um, at the Republican National Convention or not. Um, and I think realistically, no presidential candidate ever really runs on their party platform, either Democrat or Republican directly. They're going to run on their own couple key policy agenda items, and they're going to run on their personality. And in my experience, just being around um, a few different conventions, both at the state and national level, is that there's always an attention involved in those platforms in the sense that at each party, the people that are showing up are activists. They're the ones that are true believers. Um, and they are there to fight for policy issues on the left and on the right. And there's this inherent tension between the folks trying to put information into those platforms and the candidates themselves who know that they have to be able to win in a general election. So that like tension always exists there all the time. And the reason I think that we did not hear a whole lot of griping and complaining from the Republican side about there not being a platform about the party just being Trump's is that for the, maybe the, for the first time, most of those grassroots don't distrust the nominee. You guys talked about um, Mitt Romney, and a lot of them said, this is a guy that like got rid of jobs and f- believes in free trade, and Trump capitalized on the opposite of that. And so they didn't get upset when there was no platform, because to them, Trump is the personification of their attitude and their feelings on things. But but what it, what what is that attitude, and what are those feelings? The, what were the ideas that from your perspective are powering this candidacy to be president of the United States. As we talked about with Tim Alberta, none of the touchstone Republican issues were even mentioned last week. No one talked about tax reform or tax cuts. No one talked about deregulation. They didn't even mention health care. So what is it that is making this go, I guess, so to speak, at this well, point? Well, it's, it's somewhat a revolution in the sense of, um, emotion and attitude. Um, he tapped, and maybe those two forces came together. His ability to speak to that. There's not really anyone else floating around that has the persona and the personality to go after these frustrated people, people who felt like the economy left them behind, people who felt like under President Obama um, and even President Bush beforehand, there was a lot of conservative activists who felt that he um, wasn't protecting the U.S. Um, economy enough. And so President Trump tapped into that frustration and that anger. And that's why sometimes I think there's that quote in the story about, um, you know, we live to like to own the libs and and fight with the media. There is still like this national venting going on. And the president is especially adept at at working it. Hmm. 
Uh, Adrian Heman, partner and CEO at uh, Grassroots Midwest. I wonder what your reaction was to the RNC last week and to this idea that it's a party that is not about ideas anymore and is about this person who is the president of the United States. I mean, there's certainly an element of that. Um, and Donald Trump owes a lot of his political success to his personality because um, the Republican Party, um, the base of the Republican Party right now is motivated in large part by cultural grievance, right? Um, they're motivated by what they see as cancel culture. They're motivated by what they see as changes in demography um, and in sort of what's ex- what it's acceptable to behave like in public. Um, and they don't like it. Um in terms of some of the economic policy stuff that John mentioned, I don't actually think it's right that um, Donald Trump's the only one doing this. I think he's more successful as a national politician because his poli- um, his personality is so attuned to these cultural grievances. Um, but there are there are other national level politicians that are pushing the same level or the same type of policy positions in terms of this. Um, you know, this nationalist sort of agenda. Um, Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri is a great example of that. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, Senator Hawley is um, not your traditional just cut taxes kind of Republican. He's obviously very, very culturally conservative. Um, but, uh, you know, he's obviously not the president. Donald Trump's the president. And that's because he's tapped into that vein of grievance um, and sort of married it with this idea that John brought up. Um, that a lot of the base feels like um, their politicians have been paying lip service to them for a while. And they're not wrong. Um, that's always been um, that's always been the game in Republican primary politics. I and mean, we do it at, at my bipartisan firm when we get involved in Republican primaries um, that, you know, you're going to pay lip service to the base. But that's not ultimately what these candidates intend to do. Um, you know, but Donald Trump clearly intended to to govern based on cultural grievance. And he's doing that. Mm. Right. And we saw, you know, the same, we talked last week about this, the, the Dem Convention, which now seems like 100 years ago, um, like everything else, was a very careful exercise in not getting into a fight over the Dem policy platform, um, where the energy in the party is really far to the left. Joe Biden, may, Joe Biden literally might be the last Democratic nominee who has the gravitas of having been around this long to say, no, I'm not going to... Um, talk about fracking. No, I'm not going to talk about Green New Deal. No, I'm not going to talk about Medicare for All. He largely stayed away from all that stuff for the reasons we talked about earlier, that inherent tension that always goes on between a candidate who knows he needs to or she needs to appeal for a, to a broader audience and what the activists, the true believers, are pushing for inside the party. Hmm. But in the Democratic Party, I don't think you can make the argument that the most energized people in the party feel that Joe Biden is the personification of their agenda, and that's why there's still something in writing. Uh, you know, I, uh, Adrian Hemond, I wonder how successful you think this approach might be, especially in a state like Michigan, which President Donald Trump won in 2016, first Republican since, I think, 1988 to win the state of, of, of Michigan, and he certainly needs it in 2020 if he wants to, to, to continue to be the president. Does this kind of defensive message, this grievance agenda that you're you're talking about, does is that going to play here this year as well as it did four years ago? I mean, there's certainly a constituency for it. Um, it's an open question in Michigan specifically whether it's going to be enough to win. 
my feeling is probably not, but um, it, it certainly could. It worked last time. Um, I think that the president has, there are some missing pieces from the formula the president was able to execute in Michigan last time, um, starting with a nominee that was deeply unpopular for the Democrats, mm-hmm. especially with these non-college educated um, white, you know, working class voters um, that everyone has been talking about for the last four years. Um, those folks did not like Hillary Clinton, especially the men. Um, that's not the case with Joe Biden, right? Um, Joe Biden has made a political career out of getting downscale white voters mm-hmm. to vote for him. That's how he kept getting reelected to the U.S. Senate. So I, I think that that the president starts at a disadvantage there because he doesn't have the uh, he doesn't have a nominee that's an effective punching bag with the constituency he needs to resonate with the most. He needs to run up big margins. Um, in that demographic group, and he's not right now. He's winning that demographic group, and I expect that he'll continue to win that demographic group, but he's not blowing Democrats out there like he did in 2016 in Michigan. Hmm. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to get you into the show. Let's go to Frank in Detroit. Frank, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, with respect to uh, the discussion, uh, let me start out by saying this. Uh, cult-like behavior is to religion as crack cocaine is to cocaine. And when you make a concerted effort to not see the missteps and the misdeeds of the person who's leading you, that, in my view, is cult-like behavior. Mm. It's not about the mission anymore. It's about whatever the person says. And whatever he's done wrong, we pretend like he didn't do it. Sometimes we straight out lie about it, or we make excuses for it. And that's where we are right now. And it's not just the Republicans. They are an extreme case. The Democrats do as well, but they do it less well. Mm. Now, with respect to this election, I am going to hold my nose and vote for Biden. Because I think what we have on the griddle, if you will, (laughs) is a potential Mussolini at best and the other guy at worst. Yeah, Uh, Frank, I really appreciate the call and and your thoughts there. John Selleck, that's that's a pretty harsh assessment of... The Republican Party, this word cult gets thrown out a lot when people think about Donald Trump. Certainly last week, the the whitewashing or absolute uh, ignoring of things that, uh, that the president has done and said or the attempt to recast them in absurd terms uh, suggests cult-like behavior. I mean, as a, as a longtime Republican how does that how does that land with you? Well, using the platform as the discussion again, you know, is the lack of a platform that you have to be absolutely wedded to um, a good thing for Trump? Yeah, it's great for Trump because he can continue to say or do whatever he wants on a day to day basis, um, whether those things match up day to day or not. Um, but is it good for the party as a whole in the long run? It's not. Hmm. Um, But what we don't know right now is, are we essentially going through an emotional revolution of frustration being vented outward 
and then we follow what's essentially happened over the years with the presidential election that the opposite it, we keep swinging back and forth every two to four years between gripes and grievances. So everybody turned away from George W. Bush to a more aspirational uh, sounding Barack Obama. Uh, and after eight years of that, then we just swung way back the other way to frustration that aspirations didn't meet uh, a lot of people's literal you know, daily hopes and needs, um, especially economically. And so now we've seen it swing back the other way. My guess is that in the long run, and that may only be in another four years or, mm-hmm. or shorter, there'll be the opportunity for a Republican or someone else to come along who can fill that ap- the aspirational place. I think the people who are lining themselves up now, like Senator Cotton or Senator Hawley, somebody mentioned earlier, um, they're attempting to kind of mimic what Trump's doing. And I don't think mimicking has worked very well uh, in politics uh, like it does maybe when you're selling a product. Mm. Uh, again, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. Aaron in Detroit, you're up next. You there, Aaron? Uh, I am here. Hey, yeah. Go Thanks ahead. for having me. Yeah. Um, I wanted to start by saying I am not a supporter of the Republican Party at all. And I I don't condone any of the things that, that Trump does or, or says. Um, but watching the parts of the RNC that I did see and, and you know, bearing witness to the last four years. I, I wish that the RNC and other Republicans would acknowledge some of the facts that have happened, which is Trump has subconsciously, and I don't give him credit for anything really that he's done, um, he has subconsciously drained the swamp and exposed so much hatred in this country. Um, and he has built walls within the country around communities, um, not so much the borders like he talked about, but mm-hmm. I think. He is um, reckless within his subconscious, and we've seen him self-destroy multiple times throughout history. So I'm wondering if the RNC is willing to admit that we're seeing him do it again with the fate of all of our lives and livelihoods, um, you know, at stake. And, you know, I, I oftentimes use the analogy when talking to friends and peers that he is the bathtub stopper. He is the plug in the drain of the swamp. So we're seeing all of these people come down around him. And you could argue that they weren't there before he got there, but they were most certainly there shaking things up and, you know, causing problems uh, before from Stone to Barr to Flynn to McConnell, whoever you want to, you know, put on the list. And I think the one thing that the Republicans, uh, you know, don't admit to, and, and that's why we're seeing a one-person leader in that group, is that those things are happening because of him. Those mm. things were there because of him, and, and and he is supporting them, I don't think willingly, because I don't think he has the the right type of mind to actually be a leader. He, he is simply, you know, he is unplugging yeah. the swamp. Uh, he, he, he is the swamp. Yeah. And Aaron, I I appreciate the the call and the comments and 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 I want to sort of drill down on this building walls concept that that you shared with us. The idea that the president has built some internal walls. I want to play a clip of a speech from last week from Nikki Haley, who's the former governor of South Carolina, which I think goes to this idea of the walls that the Republican Party want to reinforce uh, as we get into this fall campaign. In much of the Democratic Party, it's now fashionable to say that America is racist. That 
is a lie. America is not a racist country. Okay, that was Nikki Haley, an Indian woman who changed her name from Nimrata to Nikki uh, in order to appeal to white South Carolina voters, telling the rest of the country that America is not a racist country, uh, the way that she says many Democrats would uh, would suggest it is. John Selleck, talk about this kind of appeal and why or whether it it is a winning strategy for the Republican Party. Well, I think it was uh, back when you were talking to Tim a little bit, you talk about um, is what they're doing to double down on the white vote good for the party? And there's two different ways to look at it. Um, in the long run, like Tim was talking about, because of changes in demographics and where America is headed um, and the losing at the um, with the national popular vote, um, you would say that the party is not positioning itself for the future uh, in a good way. Mm. But when in history has politics been something that people plot out for the next generation? It never happens. You make your decisions in the here and the now. And uh, to win on Election Day, you're adding up a certain amount of votes. And so they have made the choice to double down on that strategy. Mm. Um, uh, clearly, clearly, yeah, clearly racism is still alive. Obviously, it is. One thing I noticed in polling numbers over the weekend, though, after the president framed his speech around whether you're going to be safe or not, you actually saw the Democrats scramble into action. And I think they recognize it's actually an effective argument and that Biden's team has been a little bit stuck um, trying to like straddle both sides of this issue. And Debbie Dingell, um, a great champion for Michigan, was in the Washington Post saying, we can't just give away the cops to Trump. This is ridiculous. There's more we can be doing here on both sides of the issue. Um, and so that fight has already caused the Democrats to start shifting just since Thursday night. So even though you go on Twitter and read that everybody's mocking the president for how he delivered it or how long it was or his hair or whatever, the, the real effect right here in the now is that Biden had to come out and start going after the violence. Mm. And I think in Michigan, we've been very fortunate to not have experienced that. And there's probably a number of factors with our leaders, with Chief Craig, with the mayor, with folks that are involved in the protests. Um, And that'll be really important for the Michigan vote going forward, that they're able to keep the peace in Southeast Michigan. Okay. John Selleck and Adrian Hemond, it's always great to have you here to talk about politics. We will have to do it again before the election in November. Thanks for coming by. Thanks a lot going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow when we're going to talk about how state officials are attempting to control the oncoming flu season amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Plus, sports columnist Kevin Blackstone is going to weigh in on the protests that are sweeping through pro sports leagues. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.